0: We are in 1 Peter, chapter 2, and backing up a little bit, just to kind of give you the introductory verse, really to a section that begins in chapter 2, verse 11 and 12, and continues through the end of of chapter 4, really, very similar themes throughout there. Verses 11 and 12 of chapter 2 of 1 Peter, Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh which wage war against your soul, keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable, so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. So, last week, we, following up on that major theme, began to get into a discussion that Peter had about the relationships between believers and unbelievers. The assumption at the outset was that believers co- will come into conflict with the world at some point, in some way. It's pretty much hard to avoid. It's not that they're living in a foreign world in the sense they don't know the language or they don't know the customs. But they're living in a world that we no longer now call home. Our home is elsewhere. They've changed. We've changed our allegiance to the kingdom of God. And are now responsible to reflect that reality in our conduct, and that that's what Peter is going to be talking about. That so to get into that subject, uh, Peter picked three of what were probably the most difficult relationships in first-century Christians that he could come up with. One was government relationship to the Roman government, servitude, being a slave, and marriage. Now we covered government and servitude, you know, last week. Uh, We aren't going to cover marriage this week. I'm going to let you enjoy the holidays first, (laughs) and and then we'll come back to that one. But right now we're going to take a little digression with Peter. Now you can look at this next portion as being uh, connected closely in many ways to his discussion with servitude, which was very specifically for household slaves. People who were up close and personal, living all the time with these people who were their masters, and they were expected to behave in certain ways. Their conduct was very closely scrutinized, as opposed to the slaves that worked the big farms or the mines. And you can see this as a follow-on from that, but you can also take it as a separate piece. And that's what we're going to do with verses 21 through 25. By his wounds you have been healed, for you were straying like sheep, but have now returned to the shepherd and Overseer's overseer of your souls. In the Gospels of Matthew, Mark, and Luke, they all record an incident where Jesus said to his disciples, who do people say I am? And after they got some feedback there, then he asked, well, who do you say I am? And Peter responded, being the first out of the gate, as he usually was, uh, you are the Christ. In Matthew's account, Jesus commended Peter, blessed are you, Simon bar for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father in heaven. And Jesus went on to begin talking about and predicting his suffering, his death, and his resurrection. And so Peter, being Peter, took Jesus aside and rebuked him for this. And uh, both Matthew and Mark add what Jesus' response was to that rebuke, which was, which was, get behind me, Satan. So Peter went from the top to the bottom, all here within one, one story. But it's, there's a certain irony, I think, to the fact that this text from 1 Peter is where we find the beginning of the church tradition that associates Jesus with the suffering servant of Isaiah 53 and the things that he went through. And that passage actually begins in uh, 52, verse 13, but runs to the end of 53. And I want to read a portion of it uh, that formed the foundation for what Peter is going to be teaching in this, in this passage. Uh, and I've highlighted those po- sources of Peter's quotes and possible allusions so we can see how much he drew on this passage. So it's fairly long The Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth, like a lamb that is led to slaughter, like a sheep before his shears. He was silent, so he opened not his mouth. By oppression and judgment he was taken away, and as for his generation, who considered that he was cut off from out of the land of the living, stricken for the transgression of my people? And they made his grave with the wicked and with a rich man in his death although he had done no violence and there was no deceit in his mouth yet it was the will of the lord to crush him he has put him to grief when his soul makes an offering for guilt he shall see his offspring he shall prolong his days he will uh, he, the will of the lord shall prosper in his hand out of the anguish of his soul he shall see and be satisfied by his knowledge Okay, so now we're all going to sing the second portion of Handel's Messiah, which includes verses from this from this passage. With that background, let's look more specifically at what Peter has to say. I think you can see that over the top of me when we just read it a little bit ago. For to this you have been called, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you might follow in His steps. First, to what have we been called? Well, we saw that really early on in Peter in chapter 1 where Peter talks about, but he who called you is holy and you are to be holy in your conduct. In chapter 2, he says, you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. That's our position as believers And to the suffering spoken of in the the previous sections we've been talking about, particularly the destructions to the household slaves, Peter wrote, If when you do good and suffer for it, you endure, this is a gracious thing in the sight of God. That's something else we've been called to, is that suffering. This was preceded, by the way, by an exhortation to all believers in verse 16, to live as slaves as God, slaves of God. We're all slaves. The context of suffering in view was not that which accompanied the human condition. We're not talking about illness or aging, or if you want to extend that to social conditions of poverty and prejudice and all those kinds of things. And it was not the suffering that went along with consequences of poor choices or inappropriate behavior. It's very specifically Suffering unjustly because of conduct that's faithful to Christian values and our allegiance to the Lord Jesus Christ. That's the suffering Peter's talking about here. It's awful easy for us, it's in our human nature to try to make excuses, to be the victim sometimes, to try to make all kinds of suffering fit this passage, but it doesn't. It only fits if it fits this qualification. And that conduct, we've learned already, involved good doing, being good doers. Uh, Emphasized several times in verses 13 through 20, Peter further declared that uh, the reason for this unique calling was because Christ suffered for us, And the word translated suffered was important enough to Peter that he uses it a dozen times in the course of his letter. Uh, Four times it talks about Jesus. Eight times it talks about us. It talks about believers. Now this is interesting because this made Peter the source, really, a primary primary New Testament source for a theology of suffering. Now you have that in the Old Testament, you can find it in lots of places, just read Job. Uh, but in the New Testament, this is where we have this built out, in the most exhaustive form, if you will, or the most comprehensive form, and it really covers all through 1 Peter. And that should make it clear to us that this idea that suffering is not part of the Christian life is not biblical. confirmation of that truth is found in the rest of the verse where Jesus was said to be an example for us as Christians there's a rarely used word there translated example uh, by most English Bibles um, it referred to tracing the pattern of letters like you were a child learning how to write you trace the letters in this pattern yeah, or we're doing alpha and beta or gamma or whatever but you're doing in there and so that's this what it's talking about, is this pattern. It's the only place we see it in the New Testament. We not, don't see it much outside of that. Um, now, the idea of example, or the word example, and you could use pattern or model, maybe substituted in there, captures most of the idea, but it falls short in one sense. And that is that the Greek term that's used here connotes the idea that Jesus was the only example not just one, the only example that Christians are to follow. His example was and is left for a specific purpose. In order that all believers might follow in his steps. Uh, Literally, an idiom literally, uh, to walk in the tracks, or to follow in the tracks. Additionally, that builds in the idea, not so much as stepping exactly in the same tracks, but conveys the force of following along the same line, going in in the same direction. No Christian can perfectly walk in our Savior's tracks. So it's really not a picture of like walking through a minefield and following somebody's tracks that made it safely. The better picture is of an adult being followed by a child in some relatively deep snow. That child is never going to be able to walk in exactly the same tracks as that adult. But they're going to go on the same line in the same direction. Hebrews, I think, has a similar picture of what's involved here. Just to bring in some other scripture that's important. Always let scripture interpret scripture. In Hebrews chapter 12, we read, Therefore, since also... We also have such a large cloud of witnesses surrounding us. Let us lay aside every hindrance and the sin that so easily ensnares us. Let us run with endurance the race that lies before us, keeping our eyes on Jesus, the pioneer and perfecter of our faith. For the joy that was laid before him, he endured the cross, despising the shame, and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. I picked this particular translation because I like that rendering of pioneer for the... uh, for the Greek word there, archegos. Hebrews talked about it earlier as well. In fact, if you look at the book of Hebrews, there's kind of a bookend here between chapter 12 and chapter 2. And in in chapter 2, we have, For in bringing many sons and daughters to glory, it was entirely appropriate that God, for whom and through whom all things exist, should make the pioneer, Jesus, of our salvation perfect through sufferings. This quote is from a commentator on First Peter, uh, Karen Jobes, and I really like it as a summary for what this is getting across. Jesus Christ left us this pattern over which we are to trace out our lives in order that we might follow in his footsteps. This is a strong image associating the Christian life, Christian's life with the life of Christ. For one cannot step into the footsteps of Jesus and head off in any other direction than the direction he took and his footsteps lead to the cross, through the grave, and onward to glory. Isaiah 53 became the source from which Peter made some important contributions to another area of uh, New Testament theology. And that was Christology. That's the study of the person and the work of Jesus Christ. And you shouldn't be surprised I'm going to give you a theology lesson. That's, you know, that's kind of one of my things. So anyway, we see this coming up really in the next uh, four verses, the next three verses in this passage. Let's read them first again. He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. He himself, bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed. So what happens in this passage is there's uh, four relative clauses that all begin with the Greek word who or whose. And so I'm going to do a little sentence diagramming for you here, kind of. There's your four who's, or one who's. Three who's and one who's. And each one of them does, uh, uh, you know, has another piece to it. That we, and that's how we're going to, we're going to go through this and look at this in a little more detail. I'm just going to leave that up. Uh, I know you can't see real well behind me, but, but we're going to go through each one of these to try to give us a better sense of what's being communicated here. And then we'll get to the final verse in this passage and in this application. So, who committed no sin... The first clause is quoted by, from Isaiah fifty-three nine, and the sinlessness of Jesus was clearly affirmed by multiple New Testament sources. A couple of them, in Hebrews four verse fifteen, for we do not have a great a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are yet without sin. And in First John chapter three verse five. You know that he, Jesus, appeared in order to take away sins, and in him is no sin. The idea of the sinlessness of Christ is a major component of Christology. If you have somebody, or come across somebody, or you read something, where they want to compromise that in some way, run the other way. Because you're moving outside of orthodoxy at that point. Now this is further modified, this first who committed no sin by the second half of the clause, and neither was found deceit in his mouth, which seems like kind of an interesting addition to that. Uh, It's a more specific thing that's included, obviously, in the idea of no sin. So why was that one picked out? Why do we see that one here? Um, That puts an emphasis really on the fact that he did not engage in any kind of deception. Jesus was who he said he was That's simple we'll come back to this one the next clause who being reviled or insulted or slandered or scoffed at there's any number of ways you could render this one uh, though he was continuously reviled he did not revile in return and he did not threaten and all during that the context is suffering While Isaiah said much more about the suffering servant in chapter 53, Peter chose to emphasize these verbal elements. And it kind of makes me wonder if he saw a tendency in believers to uh, stretch the truth a little, maybe, or uh, put things, you know, put their opponents in a bad light, uh, speaking abusively of others, making threats. Like James wrote, we saw last week, the tongue is a restless evil and full of deadly poison. The final part of this, though, rather than reviling, rather than threatening in return, it says that he was entrusting himself to the one judging righteously. I like that better, justly. The clause ended with what Jesus did while suffering. In his humanity, Jesus continuously lived in trusting submission to the Father, even in the midst of suffering. The next clause, Peter brought together quotes from Isaiah, fifty-three verses four and twelve, in regard to the suffering servant learning suffering, and our sin, and for suffering for our sins, bearing and suffering for our sins. I'm sorry. Uh, the figurative use of tree here for the cross. Uh, Peter accounts for three or five of those in the New Testament. One of them's here, and the other two are in his sermons and acts. In the context of Christology, Peter made it clear that Jesus was physically on the cross, and that's in contrast to one of the very early heresies. You don't hear much about this anymore, but it's interesting. It was the first heresy called Docetism, which claimed that Jesus couldn't be God and have suffered and so that was rejected in early Christianity. This bearing of sins and his body on the tree was in order that having died to sins, we might live to righteousness. The purpose of Jesus bearing our sins and suffering and crucifixion was very specific. In 2 Corinthians 5.21, Paul wrote it this way, he said, for our sake, he, God, made him, Jesus, to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. And finally, we have the phrase, last, last clause here, who, whose wound was the means by which you have been healed. I, the italics have all been applied, you know, put in here because the Greeks are very, very concise little statement here. Uh, Peter quoted from Isaiah 53.5 here. And it's interesting in both the Greek Old Testament and Peter's actual quote, or Peter's text, the text of 1 Peter, the word translated plural, wounds, in most English Bibles is singular. Like it is up here on the screen right now. So this may have been intended to emphasize the singular wound that Jesus suffered by taking on our sin, as opposed to the multiple wounds he inflicted by being beaten and scourged and crucified. In Matthew's record of the discourse of Jesus, often referred to as the parable of the kingdoms in chapter 13, he quoted another passage in Isaiah, I think kind of leads us to that idea, same idea. In Matthew 13 verse 15, for this people's heart has grown dull, and with their ears they can barely hear, and their eyes they have closed lest they should see with their eyes and hear with their ears and understand with their hearts in turn that I would heal them. It was spiritual healing that led to the dramatic change in the lives of those who received Peter's letter. Now the last part of Peter's little digression on the suffering servant and Jesus For you were straying like sheep, but have now returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. This was another statement of movement of Peter's audience from one place to another. In this case, from straying like sheep, coming back to the shepherd. Uh, It's a strong contrast that's being drawn here. And the thought is parallel to what Peter wrote earlier in chapter 2. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Personally, I like the translation in verse 25 of shepherd and guardian. Uh, It's kind of split between the English translations, between overseer and guardian. Uh, I won't go into that much because we're going to see that word again in chapter 5. We'll talk about it then. So, if Jesus as a suffering servant is to be the model for our conduct, what does that look like? Or to pick up where we left off last week, what does the passage add to Peter's instruction about how we live as sojourners and exiles in the world? Well, just kind of a quick review, what we talked about last week. We have to start out with, as Peter did in chapter 1, our hope has to be firmly fixed on the grace that will be brought to us at the revelation of Jesus Christ. That's where we're headed. Another thing we saw last time was our attitudes toward cultural institutions around us must be founded on the commands that Peter gave, be subject to every human institution and honor everyone. Now, we looked at a lot of cross-references on those as well uh, last week in uh, particularly Paul's writings in Romans and, and Titus and 1 Timothy. This means that generally we defer to those institutions just as would be expected of someone who is an expatriate living in a foreign country. I used the example last time when you, if you're gonna drive in England, you better drive on the other side of the road. It's okay, that's their institution. In whatever ways we encounter situations that are in conflict with our faith, conflict with our values, in the previous passages we saw, our conduct should always Demonstrate good doing characterized by respect and patient endurance. Now, we can add some more to this list. The beatings, like I said last week, will continue uh, as we get into these passages. First one is, I think, there can be no place for deceit in our conduct. This word specifically referred to using trickery or falsehood to deceive in some way. Uh, chapter 2 of uh, First Peter uh, began, So put away all malice and all deceit, it's the same word, and hypocrisy and envy and slander. Put that one up here. Paul was concerned about this in his own ministry and his taking the gospel out to others. In the letter to the Thessalonians, he wrote, For our appeal does not spring from error or impurity or any attempt to deceive, same word. But just as we have been approved by God to be entrusted with the gospel, so we speak not to please man, but to please God who tests our hearts. We may be able to pull things over on people, but you can never pull anything over on God. Peter will use the same word again in chapter 3, when he quotes from uh, Psalm 34, whoever desires to love life and see good days, let him keep his tongue from evil and his lips from speaking deceit. The emphasis, interestingly again, was on verbal conduct. If our communication includes or endorses even the smallest intentional fallacy or spin or however you want to put that, then we've strayed from the path established by Jesus. This is an area in which Christians, I think, should be better at practicing. Uh, It helps to build some basic understanding of what constitutes a valid argument, but mostly it means knowing what the scripture teaches. When we give into the communication practices that stretch the truth or dilute the truth, then we've opted to borrow a phrase from Alexander Solzhenitsyn, to live by lies. Now, it's not hard to find examples of that. Hopefully not in the church, but I'm not ruling that out. We continue with the idea of verbal conduct. I think the next thing that we can draw from this passage is had to do with he was reviled and did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten. The word revile includes, as I mentioned, slandered and insult and abuse and scoffing at, basically all the most prevalent elements of our contemporary social discourse. It's not possible to obey the command to honor everyone without keeping our conversation gentle and respectful. We also, I think, learned something important from the idea of, in, of entrusting God this shifts from uh, trusting ourselves to God. This shifts from a verbal conduct to more general conduct. But living as a disciple of Jesus requires that we apply clear scriptural principles to tough situations. I would argue that we saw some of those in Peter's instructions on how Christians are to relate to government and how household slaves are to relate to the masters last week. Oftentimes, when we come across these principles in Scripture, we find ourselves asking, maybe not aloud, but at least to ourselves, did Peter or James or Paul or even Jesus really mean that? Is that what he really meant to say? I think that we find ourselves too often running into the practice of, but what if? But what if, you insert in the blank, your rationalization, or your extenuating circumstances, or your excuses, or your prevarication, or your sophistry, or whatever else you want to put in there, in order to get around what the scripture plainly says? I appreciated some feedback from last week when we were talking about our relationship with government that I got from a couple of you. In, in 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 love, in friendly, it was all that good stuff. wasn't wasn't it wasn't an argument, uh, and I and I can associate with it. But when the scripture tells us to submit to government authorities, without qualification, why are we coming up with all kinds of qualifications? The opposite of this obedience on principle is, after all, entrusting ourselves. To our sovereign and loving God. So that brings us then to the idea of live to righteousness. That's an interesting phrase. You hear about speaking truth to power. You know, Live to righteousness. Peter wrote that Jesus bore our sins in his body in the tree in order that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. There's a little bit of a challenge in this one. Uh, I think because righteousness, like holiness that we saw in chapter 1, is a concept that's not very well understood in our culture. Now we know from both the Old Testament and the New Testament that righteousness is not native to to simple humanity. Uh, Paul quotes from the Psalms in chapter 3 of Romans, "'None is righteous, no, not one. "'No one understands, no one seeks for good. "'All have turned aside, together they have become worthless.'" No one does good, not even one. Thankfully, in the same chapter, he goes on and says, But now the righteousness of God has been manifested through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. For there is no distinction for all who have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. That same group can be justified by his grace as a gift through redemption that is in Christ Jesus. So how do we who have been born anew, live to righteousness. I'm going to have to keep you on the edge of your seats for here a minute and might take a drink. I promise this is only tea, nothing stronger. A big part of this, I think, comes from, we have a little bit of a problem between coming from the New New Testament and the Greek language to, to English. Um... And you actually had this problem in the early, in, you know, early on in the church, as well as really a big problem later in the uh, in the in the 11th century when the East and West churches divided. But what it comes from the idea that, that we have the word righteous and the word just, and those don't look anything alike. But if you were to translate those into Greek, they look alike. It's the same word. And so uh, I think that's part of our challenge, is trying to get our handle on what that really means. We tend to think too much forensically or in a justice system sense about righteousness. That's not really what it's about. A big part of that work, I think, of of living to righteousness comes from the indwelling Holy Spirit, thankfully, uh, remaking us from the inside out, both individually and corporately, leading into truth, Convicting of sin, giving spiritual gifts for the benefit of others, producing the fruit of the Spirit in our character formation. But understanding how this happens goes back to our discussion last week on the guidance that comes from continuous growth in the Word of God. We need to be there. As just one example of this, consider, I think, the book of Proverbs. Maybe you would expect that one coming but it may seem like a strange choice, but the word righteous is a big part of Proverbs. Uh, Our word righteous comes from an old English compound word meaning right, wisdom, right, and wise. Living to righteousness means combining values with wisdom and application. The Old Testament literature, which includes Proverbs, uh, Job, Ecclesiastes, that's wisdom literature, uh, and some of the Psalms is rich in this righteousness content. Um, I got a quote from Bruce Waltke, who's an Old Testament scholar on on Proverbs itself, because I'm kind of putting a challenge out here that sometime because it's fun to do. Take a month and read a proverb every day. You want a 31-day month to kill raw. But uh, unless you want to skip that last one, that's up to you. But the, uh, you'll find lots and lots of values being applied with wisdom. And that's really what this righteousness is all about. Bruce Watke wrote this about Proverbs He says, The righteous are willing to disadvantage themselves to the advantage of the community. The wicked are willing to disadvantage the community to the advantage of themselves. Righteousness is a pattern of life, not merely specific acts. What is at stake is personhood, not merely performance, disposition rather than mere deeds, character behind and beyond conduct. It's a pretty rich definition of what you're looking for. That's what I'm challenging you to dig for in Proverbs. Of course, wisdom is not an end in itself, uh, detached from everyday life in some way. This is because wisdom began with the fear of God. You start wisdom with a relationship with God. And that relationship compels us, then, to bring the flourishing of God's peace or God's shalom into the world around us. So the last of Peter's guidance from that I want to look at here comes from the last part of this passage we looked at in 1 Peter. Stay close to our shepherd and guardian. This involves more than just individual spiritual disciplines. Those are important. But as we saw last week also, a major guidance for us as sojourners and exiles comes from our participation with a community of believers. Any community of believers is a tangible presence in the world of the body of Christ. And we're supposed to be part of that because we need each other to work on these things. It's really really easy to be wise and virtuous in regard to other people particularly if you never get out of your room. That's easy. It's when you get out there and face those people. That's when it gets challenging. We need to hold fast to what Jesus taught. And I want to kind of leave a thought here from the Gospel of John. Jesus said, I am the good shepherd. I know my own, and my own know me. Just as the Father knows me, and I know the Father. And I lay down my life for the sheep. My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me and I give them eternal life, they will never perish, and no one will snatch them from my, out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. We can see in this that we don't have to fear ever, ever, ever completely leaving. God's in charge of keeping us at least part of the flock But as is typical of any flock, you're always gonna get those outliers. That could be any one of us. That's kind of wandering around a little bit off to the side or off this way, or we're not staying in those footsteps we talked about before. And uh, I think this is a good reminder that that, that you avoid that problem by staying up close with a shepherd. Shepherds led their sheep, they didn't drive them in the first century and we don't need to be following that shepherd. We want to stay close by as a result of that. So I want to finish with one more look at the passage we started with, only with a different translation. For to, you, for, for to this you were called, since Christ also suffered for you, leaving an example for you to follow in his steps. He committed no sin, nor was deceit found in his mouth. When he was maligned, he did not answer back. When he suffered, he threatened no retaliation, but committed himself to God who judges righteously. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree, that we may cease from sinning and live for righteousness. By his wounds you were healed, for, going, for you were going astray like sheep, but now you have turned back to the shepherd and guardian. Of your souls. So let's pray. Father we thank you that you have provided in Jesus this example and path for us to follow. We admit as we look at this that it's hard. This is not an easy path, but you never said it would be. But you've given us all the resources we need in your word, in your people, and the indwelling Holy Spirit. And I just pray that as we meet the challenge of living as foreigners in the world that we grew up in, that you will guide us in the best way to, to represent you as those who have been set to righteousness and chosen and set apart for you. In Jesus' name.